All the best stories are full of surprises, aren't they? Not just mysteries like Sherlock Holmes, but who could have guessed the end of The Village? Or if you've ever seen that movie, The Sixth Sense, you know, you remember that moment, the end of the movie, the one final revelation completely reorients your understanding of the whole story. Well, the story of Ruth in the Old Testament is full of twists and turns that make it appealing, even if you've heard this story over and over for years. Ruth and Naomi have had a hard life. And then a man named Boaz enters the story uh, who could potentially rescue them. And we're excited about this, and he does nothing. So we're left at the end of chapter 2 with a sense of anticipation. Boaz has shown up on the scene, and we, we know that this could be so good, and yet it seems like nothing happens. So Naomi devises a plan, and then Ruth actually takes the initiative and carries it out. And as it turns out, they've read Boaz correctly, and he responds happily to Ruth's marriage proposal. And, uh, and, and at this point, we're, we're excited. We're almost exultant until yet another twist in the story. It turns out there's a closer kinsman than Boaz, one who has the first right to purchase the land and thus to marry Ruth as well. And that's where we pick up uh, this morning in chapter 4, wondering how will this all turn out. As we approach the end of the story, there are, there are three concepts that emerge in full relief in this final chapter. Uh, the concepts of redemption, fullness, and faithfulness are evident as we, as we read. So as Rachel reads the final chapter, look for these three elements. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Bide in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, You were witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, 
because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Thank you, Rachel. Well, the, fir- the first theme we see in uh, verses 1 through 12 is that of redemption. Redemption. So after the midnight rendezvous, the first scene of this final chapter finds Boaz uh, the, the next morning waiting at the gate of Bethlehem. As Naomi had predicted, he doesn't rest for a moment, but goes about settling the matter immediately. The kinsman he's been waiting for at last arrives at the gate, and Boaz um, takes him and these ten elders of the city and sits them all down uh, for this important meeting. He explains Naomi's impoverished condition to the kinsman and asks him this important question, will you redeem the property? Will you purchase this property to make it useful again? And And we want him to say no. You buy, you know, we want Boaz to get the girl, right? Not this guy. Uh, but he doesn't. He says he will redeem it, which would imperil this budding romance and ruin Naomi's matchmaking plans. But Boaz says there's a twist. If you want to purchase the property, then with it you have the responsibility to marry Ruth as well and to raise up a son to carry on the line. And immediately uh, the kinsman alters his decision. So the way these redemption policies worked was um, that the the redeemer would purchase the piece of property. If you think about that, to purchase Naomi's field would have been uh, a huge investment of the family assets. So Naomi is land-rich, cash-poor, but she has no ability to work the field she has, and so she's in poverty. So the redeemer, in this case, is to buy the field to put cash in Naomi's pocket and to make the land fruitful. But in this particular package deal, what seems appropriate, as Tom mentioned last week, is that another policy would come into play as well, that um, of leveret marriage, where the one who buys the field would also have the responsibility to marry Ruth and um, bring up a son to carry on the family name. But then as soon as a son is born into the family, that son would inherit the field that was purchased. So at that point, the Redeemer would no longer have the field, it goes to the son, nor would he have the money that he invested in the field to begin with. Well, as soon as the kinsman realizes this would be a disadvantageous business deal for him, he backs away, he excuses himself as soon as he realizes this would not be profitable. His self-interest becomes primary, and his concern for these two widows, and need not just any widows, but his own close family, uh, fades completely. This no-name family member then proves himself to be unworthy. Boaz was a worthy man, chapter 2, verse 1, calls him worthy. 
this kinsman is unworthy. If Boaz is like the good Samaritan, this relative is like the priest who passed by on the other side unconcerned. He stands in contrast to the loyal love that Boaz showed to Ruth and that, that Ruth had showed to Naomi. He understands redemption as many in Israel did, simply a business transaction, almost like a municipal affair regarding who holds the title for which plot of land. But God had instituted redemption as an opportunity to display mercy to family members in desperate situations. So that if someone was forced to sell their land just for money to live, then a kinsman with sufficient means was supposed to step in and take over the duty of purchasing that field back to to keep it in the family name. So it was business in that it always involved the payment of some ransom fee to purchase the property back. But importantly, it was business as a display of compassion, specifically to someone in need. So this is redemption, delivering from a desperate situation by payment of a ransom. That's what redemption is. It's rescue by ransom. That's, that's redemption. But this, um, but this kinsman, unwilling to jeopardize his own wealth, takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz, saying, it's all yours, buy it for yourself. So the storyteller then pauses and explains that this strange custom of taking the sandal off to indicate the the transaction was something done uh, there in verse 7, it says, at former times in Israel. Well, that little comment, at former times in Israel, reminds us that this story is being told much later, probably during the time of King David or even later than that. And the storyteller has a purpose in reaching back and grabbing this particular story and and telling it. What is that purpose? Uh, Well, to say something about Israel and Israel's history, to be sure, but also to say something about God. We'll we'll come back to that in a couple minutes. At this point, though, the the sandal's off, and then Boaz declares his decision uh, to purchase a field and to marry Ruth. This is the moment we've been waiting for. The wedding is finally here. And notice there in verse 10, part of Boaz's reason is in, in doing this is, is that so that the name of the dead family members uh, would not be cut off. You see this generous kind of life-giving motivation on his part. Now, we can't help but admire Boaz. If the relative represents what we should avoid, then Boaz is a model for us to emulate. This is the nature of ideal masculinity. This is manhood at its best. He's perfectly courteous and thoughtful uh, toward Ruth. He's full of compassion. It's not simply crass attraction that draws him to Ruth, but, but a genuine concern that protects her purity and reputation and provides for her needs at his own expense. He voluntarily and generously redeems and at great personal cost to himself. In other words, Boaz lives out God's intention in giving these redemption policies to begin with. These redemption uh, laws were meant to be a, a, an expression of loving your neighbor as yourself. And Boaz doing just that is a model for us. Although our economy doesn't include redemption policies, uh, we're surrounded by opportunities to demonstrate the essence of redemption to step into desperate situations at great personal cost in order to bring about some sort of restoration or wholeness. 
For example, you may be aware of a a marriage of a family member or friend in, in broken condition, and you step in to offer to pray to offer counsel as you're able, but, but you step into the need rather than retreating from it. Perhaps you see the refugees here in Raleigh struggling to find footing in their new home and you give time to assess their needs and help put a plan together for education or employment or a future hope. Maybe you observe the, the, um, the task of some parents you know, of young children is exhausted by caring for their kids and you, you step in to offer some relief. I was talking to a friend the other day who was um, saying that he and his wife would love to consider in the future opening their home up as as a safe house for uh, those who have been victims of sex trafficking. Why should we not be prayerfully imaginative about opportunities and possibilities like that? Whenever you have an eye for the struggler and step in at personal cost to lend aid, you have reflected the essence of redemption. You know, of course, some of those kinds of things you could, you could sit there and brainstorm about and, and plan to do this week. But then there will be other things that come unexpectedly. There are unplanned opportunities that will come across your path that you'll respond spontaneously to, uh, like a woman showing up on the threshing floor in the middle of the night. And we need to be ready for those kinds of opportunities, looking for where God may want to use us, having a redemptive mindset, a mind that, and heart that want to set crooked things straight, even at personal cost. So Boaz is a model for us in this way, but Boaz is more than just a model for us to emulate. Really, Boaz points our attention forward to Jesus Christ. He's a sign pointing forward to the true and better Boaz. Boaz had a son who had a son who had a son. 30 generations later, there's a son named Jesus. And just as Boaz entered Ruth's story, Jesus entered the human story. He saw us in our moment of great need and moved at great personal cost to meet that need. It wasn't just some of his money that he spent to buy us happiness. It was his life that he gave to give us eternal life. The gospel writer Mark records Jesus' own words. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this, this whole story functions as a prototype of the gospel, where we are like Ruth, the foreigner refugee in a desperate situation with no hope. And at just that moment, when it seems like there's no alternative, there's a twist in the storyline that guarantees hope. We've been separated from God foreigners without hope and just when it seems that there's no way of regaining God's favor Jesus Christ steps in and opens up a way not from anything that we bring but completely of his own accord what does what 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 did Ruth bring to the table nothing yet what does she get everything if you like the story of Ruth you should love the story of the gospel Although Ruth and Boaz and and whoever recorded their story for us had no idea about Jesus of Nazareth, still God knew and orchestrated all of these events in their lives to display divine compassion in the act of redemption. Something seen dimly in Boaz and brilliantly in Jesus. 
So this story then teaches us about God's redeeming nature. Redemption is part of the way God thinks. It's key to his character. So, of course, it's part of the stories that we read in his word. But there's another theme that we see in this final chapter of the story, and that is the theme of fullness. Fullness. In verse 13, we see that after Boaz and Ruth are married, she bears a son. What an incredible moment this must have been for that family. You know, from the moment that we first met Ruth and Naomi, life for them had been just a series of setbacks and red lights. It's just one thing after the next. They have come from famine, the death of the patriarch of their family, and then the sons, the the husbands. And on top of this, Ruth appears to be unable to have children. In chapter 1, verse 4, says she was married to Malon for 10 years, and there were no children from that marriage. It's not something you would choose in that culture. Jewish families don't choose to be childless. So the author at least implies that she is barren. She's unable to have children. Then they return home in abject poverty, living off the scraps of another person's field. Their lives just feel drained, empty. It's, It's depressing just to read chapter one. One of the beautiful aspects of the storytelling in the short book is all of these parallels that occur within the narrative. So you have a a natural uh, disaster paralleled by the familial catastrophe. So Moab is without food, and Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are without husbands. So that Naomi says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty-handed. But now, as we reach the end of the story, there's another parallel, a parallel by contrast. That reversal from full to empty has been undone, from empty back to full. They've been received with love by a wealthy landowner, and not only that, but now there's a son to carry on the name and to receive the inheritance. It's a complete reversal, from bitterness to happiness, from emptiness to fullness, at the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, these, these witnesses recorded there in chapter 4 had prayed for three things. First, for Ruth, that God would make her like Rachel and Leah. These, these were Jacob's wives back in Genesis who gave birth to the 12 sons that would become the tribes of Israel. And they are praying for Ruth that she would, like Rachel and Leah, give birth to um, the carrying on, in a sense, the, the household, the nation of Israel. They pray secondly for Boaz. They prayed that Boaz would be known, that he would be an honorable, noble man. Not, not just that he would be known in Bethlehem in terms of fame or popularity, but that he would be known as a noble, worthy man for his character and integrity. And then thirdly, they pray for the family, for this new household that's being formed. They pray that, um, well, really by comparing this household to Judah and Tamar, and there's some similarity and some contrast. If you remember the story of Judah and Tamar, it's not a pretty one. There's deceit and immorality in that story. Um, and so it's contrasted here with the story of Boaz and Ruth, which is full of purity and integrity. And yet the point of similarity is that just when Tamar seemed to be beyond hope of having a son to carry on the family name, Here also, Ruth seems to be beyond hope in almost every regard. Um, Marriage had seemed unlikely. Uh, She seemed barren. And so they're now praying that Ruth would be able to have a son, even though it seemed like she was beyond hope. And so when Ruth has a son, their prayers are answered. Fullness is returned to the family. And at this point, 
Attention then shifts from Boaz to Obed, the son. And now the, the, the women around Naomi say to her about her grandson, Obed, you can see there in verses 14 and 15, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So who is the Redeemer now? It's no longer Boaz, but it's Obed, because Obed would receive the inheritance of Elimelech and carry on the family name. And then verse 17 says in a very understated manner that Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David. Ruth and Boaz continue building the house of Israel, just as was prayed for them. But not only building the national house of Israel, but specifically the, uh, the royal line of David, the line of the greatest king of that nation. This is extreme generosity from God. And this is one of the key themes of this story. The hidden yet providential hand of God directing and providing for this pair of widows from the land of Moab. You no doubt in your life have felt some of the, the kind of emptiness that Naomi and Ruth must have felt throughout life where it seems like the Almighty is against you. Nothing goes right. Hopes and dreams go unrealized. Life simply doesn't provide all you'd hoped for out of it. But although Ruth and Naomi had experienced emptiness, God shows himself to be for them the giver of fullness. The result of redemption for Ruth is fullness not simply from poverty to wealth. The focus here is not on the acquisition of inheritance, but rather on entering into this covenant relationship of marriage with Boaz, where he obligates himself to her for her provision and protection. You know, whatever you may be experiencing of life's red lights and setbacks, the story of Ruth then is a reminder that God gives redemption that results in fullness. Thus, the one who has experienced first the redemption of God then experiences the fullness that God gives, which is increasing satisfaction and joy in relationship with him. So it doesn't always look like a change in circumstances. It did for Ruth here. It won't always look like that, at least not immediately for us. But remember, the best thing that Ruth gets out of all this is Boaz, And the fullness that God gives us is joy in relationship with him, which then results in the power to face and to live with one's own failings and deferred hopes and and even give contentment under the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, for which the Christian name is God's wise providence. Just think about Ruth holding Obed in her arms. I'm sure she could look back over her life and make some sense of the prior pains that it had involved. And here's the thing, for you, regardless of what you're experiencing now, you, you know that because of God's kindness, all that lies ahead for you is all of grace. And knowing the end of the story should adjust our perspective in the middle chapters. His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. 
as one person said, the story of Ruth reminds us that for the godly, life is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. They do get there. Thus, whatever setbacks lie in your path at this moment, whatever feelings of emptiness, resignation to despair um, you might feel now, what lies ahead for you in God's providence is greater good. And it doesn't only await us in the future, but can be our experience in the present, even in the midst of difficulty. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, the one who gives his life for his sheep. He's that good. And he describes his interaction with his sheep in terms of provision, providing uh, a pasture, a safe pasture for them, and in that sense, protection as well from those who would come and destroy them. He is the good shepherd who provides for his sheep. And he says, I came that they, my sheep, may have life and have life to the full. And this life to the full is interpreted by Jesus to mean those two things, provision and protection that he himself gives. So let me suggest, just kind of teasing that out a little bit, what this life of fullness looks like. First of all, uh, life to the full is happiness that's wrapped up in God. Just as Ruth's happiness was wrapped up in her marriage to Boaz and her new relationship with him, our happiness must be wrapped up in God himself. We have to cultivate a happiness that's rooted in God rather than circumstances. As the psalmist said, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy is in God's presence. Now, admittedly, this is not a natural thing for us. And yet, for those who live according to the Spirit, for those who walk according to the Spirit, this becomes a somewhat natural thing. In Romans 8, Paul says that the Spirit actually confirms in our hearts that we are children of God. He applies the experience of that truth to our hearts so that we sense what is true. We sense that acceptance with the Father so that it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. We have to depend on the Spirit for this kind of experience, for this kind of happiness in our hearts that is wrapped up in God himself. So it's happiness in God. Secondly, life to the full is obedience despite anxieties. Obedience despite anxieties. You see Ruth and Boaz in this story, um, no doubt riddled with anxiety over their circumstances, um, uncertain of how it's going to work out. All the twists and turns, um, you know, that we kind of read these four chapters in 30 minutes, but they unfold, you know, over life for them. Imagine the anxieties they must have felt at each turn in the story. And yet you see them unwilling to finagle, unwilling to take dishonest paths to immediate comfort. This obedience, despite anxiety, actually produces fullness. It's blessed by God. Third, um, a, a life to the full is, is one that chooses gratitude, choosing gratitude. Nancy Lee DeMoss has written an excellent book called Choosing Gratitude in which she describes um, thankfulness, a thankful heart, as something that we, that we choose. We make a decision to be thankful. In the midst of difficult circumstances, we recognize both the peace and the difficulties of life are from God. 
and choose thankfulness for his purposes in them. And then fourthly, life to the full. Um, Well, just to point out, fullness is found in Jesus. Fullness is found in Jesus. As one preacher said, Jesus Christ is in every way sufficient to the vast desires of the soul. Jesus Christ is in every way sufficient to the vast desires of the soul. The gospel, the good news that Jesus brings us into challenges, by its very nature, challenges our small-minded selfishness and enlarges our noblest ambitions. The gospel is the news that we have been brought into a family, the family of God, and that we have in this family eternal acceptance with the Father. What greater fullness could there be? And then along with this, we find that the gospel brings forgiveness, community, meaning, contentment, identity, freedom, hope, and vocation. All of these things come to us with great richness in the good news of Jesus Christ. Fullness, then, is found in him. So redemption blooms into fullness in this story. And then there's a third theme that we see in the final lines of this chapter, and that is the theme of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. So the story concludes not quite with a happily ever after, but maybe something similar. A historical note about where this love story fits within the broader national story of Israel. So this 10-member genealogy right at the end there uh, reminds us that Ruth and Boaz are linked to a story that precedes and follows theirs. They are one chapter in Israel's novel. In one sense, verses 18 through 22, this genealogy, um, this, this is the key to understanding the significance of this story. It explains why someone generations later would go back and record it, and then why Israel would adopt it into their scriptures. Because it, it fits into the framework of the nation's story. And just to review Israel's story for a moment, it, be, it began with the patriarchs, right? The promises that God made to Abraham carried on to Isaac and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the tribes of Israel. But these descendants, through no fault of their own, end up as slaves in a foreign country in Egypt for 400 years until at long last God sends Moses to deliver them. And then following Moses' leadership, Joshua leads the nation into conquest to inhabit Canaan. So you have patriarchs, slavery, uh, exodus and conquest, and then settling in the land of Canaan. And the first verse of Ruth tells us that this story takes place in the time of Judges, which would have been in the time they're settled in Canaan. Now they're being ruled over by a a series of Judges, and that's when this story occurs. But what we learn about Israel as we read through their history in the Old Testament is that Israel is not really the hero of the story, but the villain. God has extended his forgiveness to them over and over again and demonstrates goodness toward them, and yet Israel sink cyclically deeper into the pit of their own vices. The book of Judges then portrays a nation so far gone that hope of recovery seems altogether lost. People bent on uh, their own good. It's a a crime-ridden nation. Every man for himself, no one fearing God. The refrain in the book of Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
And that situation led to social chaos. The sexual pursuits and power struggles and experiments with pluralism didn't lead to freedom at all for Israel, but rather misery. Any society populated by people bent on individual autonomy where personal liberty takes priority over every other social good is inevitably going to descend into chaos. Everyone doing right in their own eyes inevitably means conflict. Non-parallel lines always intersect one another. But the story of Naomi and Ruth then can be seen as a microcosm of Israel's desperate need, of their hopeless situation. Israel needs to be delivered from themselves and the case that they're building against themselves. The social disorder and moral degradation revealed in Judges is really a case for their desperate need for good governance. They need someone to rule over them. So as most biblical scholars point out, uh, Judges and Ruth together are making a case for Israel's need of kingship. They need a king. They need the last word of Ruth, David. That's what they need. So in this sense, God proves himself to be faithful. And this genealogy reminds us that we're not simply reading a story full of surprises, not just a literary masterpiece, but we're reading history, a reliable account of events that actually occurred and carried forward God's faithful plan in the world. Remember I said we need to ask, why does the author write this story? Why does he go back and record this story for Israel to begin with? Well, he writes it because it tells us something about God. God is faithful to his promises. God had made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God had made a promise to Israel. And now through Ruth, he is keeping his promises. A righteous king is coming who will deliver and give the good governance that Israel needs. Thus, God proves himself to be faithful both, both to um, Ruth and Naomi, but also to Israel. And so he is good. He's faithful. Not only faithful in the sense of good to them, uh, but faithful also in the sense that he is capable, he's more than capable, of taking the various shards and disappointments of life and bringing them together into a wise and ordered progression toward the goal that he has in mind for each person uh, as well as the world as a whole. This is the Christian doctrine of providence, God's providence, that God is taking the history of the world and your history in particular uh, in a certain direction. He's going somewhere with it. This is the actual execution within time of God's design created in eternity. This is God's providence. John, John Flavel, an English pastor in the 1600s, noted that there are two ways of thinking of the providence of God, his faithfulness in bringing about his purposes in our lives and in the world. Two ways of seeing his providence. One is piece by piece. One act at a time. You know what happens today, and you may be well aware that it comes from the hand of God, and yet it may have little meaning to you beyond that. And think of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, uncertain of where they're headed, uh, knowing that in some sense this was designated by God, and yet unable to see it as part of the whole. 
uncertain where they're going. And this is the sort of partial and imperfect view that we often have of God's work. It's like single acts, one at a time, not sure how they all fit together. And this is normally the the best that we're able to perceive his workings in this world. We may catch some glimpse from time to time of the specific ways his plan fits together, like Ruth 4, where it kind of all seems to make sense. But often, even those things for us are, are just guesses. And of course, Christians have often proven quite wrong in their guesses about how God might be working. Yet we still know and should acknowledge that he works for us. As the psalmist said, I will cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills all his purposes for me. Confident that God will fulfill all of his purposes and yet crying out to God that he would do that. So there's the piece by piece, but then there's a second vantage point as well, and that is the one that we'll enter into one day, some point in the future, Paul says to the Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In the eternal age, when we stand face to face with God, the events of life will no longer be a riddle to us. We'll be able to look back with perfect clarity and see the faithfulness of God directing and shaping all the small and large experiences of life, the peaceful moments and the disappointments. But between these two views, the piece by piece and that face to face, Between these two views is the same difference as between the sight of the disjointed gears and pins of a watch and the sight of the whole united in one frame working in an orderly motion. We'll have that view one day. But even now, you know, we look at the book of Ruth, we look at her life, this story, and we say with confidence, God fulfilled his purposes for her. All that he had in mind to accomplish for her And for Israel, eventually for us, he accomplished all of it. He will do no less than this for you. He is in process with that, even now. So as your story takes its own twists and turns in the days and weeks ahead, maybe even in the hours ahead, use the story of Ruth as an inducement to confidence towards God's goodness. Recall this story as a reminder of a faithful God who redeems through Christ in order to bring us into the fullness of delighting in him. Let's pray now that God would give us that grace.